0: Next in our study, we're going to talk about beauty and the creation of what is beautiful and true and right. This is where we're going to start getting into the questions of culture, so you can begin to extend your thinking towards the good and towards the purpose of all the stuff that's going on. What you see fundamentally happening in the world is you see a culture war going on that you're getting sucked into, and the culture is about deciding what is the purpose and destiny of the West, of your people and your future and all this type of stuff. And the great argument against what is currently the normal regime is its ugliness, It is Stalinist in its approach towards mankind. There's a style of architecture known as brutalism that was very famous in the Soviet Union, where every man was equal to live inside a giant concrete block apartment. There was essentially a soulless slum, and it was not very, very much, very much not a great place to be. And modern society is. Generally, degrading in its quality, it is getting uglier and uglier as time goes forward. You see an awful lot of the modern art works, and it looks like a disease more than it looks like something with grandeur. You go into Barcelona and look at the great projects they set up in the 19th century to re- um, renovate the Gothic quarters and whatnot, and and you look at the, the scope of what they built there. These huge, towering, and um, beautiful stone buildings with this really really um, profound style and architecture it's one of the most beautiful shocking places to go in the world and you realize that it's 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 like what we have now is is ridiculous it's it's low quality it's ugly and you go through Ireland you go through Spain you go to any parts of Europe you go to Portugal you go to Italy and you look at the more modern buildings and they're they're made of crappy cardboard, you know, low quality materials and all this type of stuff. And there's no style and you step inside, for example, the rooms and they echo with this kind of sharp pang because they're not made properly. And then you go inside these older buildings and the the, the walls are tall everything slopes, there's style inside of them, all this type of stuff. And it's not necessarily more expensive either. That's what's so interesting. But it's definitely more beautiful. I think a great symbol of this is Notre Dame burned down, and they're going to rebuild it now, and they're going to modernize it, and they're going to add in an awful lot of this, you know, um, liberalized nonsense, such as social equality and all these type of things. And and you see the disease um, appearing in this most sacred space of all. We're going to destroy it by adding in, like, a sort of safe space inside of a church and stuff like this. Now, Nietzsche had comments on beauty, of course. Nietzsche had comments on everything, I guess. And we need to understand his comments and what he's suggesting. Of course, he's asserting, as usual, that this, th- these things like beauty, these these actual higher values of life, are not achieved by liberal attitudes. The softer and more comfortable we are, the more hedonistic and pleasure-loving we are, the more we obsess about granting unearned rights to people and granting unearned softness and safe spaces and comforts to people, the less beautiful we become. A very logical thing when you think about it. But it's uh, one of those harsh realities of life that civilization um, hides from us. And the sort of effeminate childish instincts inside of us that demand that we, you know, reorganize society to make it nicer and more gentle and more comfortable and more compassionate and all this type of stuff. In order for us to pursue those goals, we actually sacrifice things of much, much greater and profounder value, a value that we recognize instinctively. And this is the value of things like beauty, which is, of course, tied to strength and to truth. Weakness leads to ugliness. Ugliness leads to liberalism. (laughs) Now, Nietzsche says that beauty is no accident. Even the beauty of a race or of a family, the charm and perfection of all its movements, is attained with pains. Like genius, it is the final result of the accumulated work of generations. Great sacrifices must have been made on the altar of good taste. For its sake, many, many things must have been done, and much must have left, must have been left undone. The 17th century in France is admirable for both of these things. In this century, there must have been a principle of selection in respect to company, locality, clothing, the gratification of the instinct of sex. Beauty must have been preferred to, the, to profit, to habit, to opinion, and to indolence. The first rule of all, nobody must let himself go, not even when he is alone. Good things are exceedingly costly, and in all cases the law obtains that he who possesses them is a different person from him who is acquiring them. Now, this is a very interesting. Um, set of statements. So, first of all, is the establishing premise that something great is strived for. Beauty is strived for. So, as we said, maybe you could relate this to the ideas about freedom. In in all cases, the law obtains that he who possesses them is different from the person who is acquiring them. So it's like with something like freedom. When you have freedom, you become a different person than the person who's seeking freedom. In fact, sometimes gaining freedom can soften you to the point where you lose your freedom, and so it becomes a very big conversation about maintaining your freedom once you're up there on top of the top of the mountain. This type of thing. The um, same with something like beauty. You know, when you are not beautiful, you become quite a, a a severe person in pursuit of it, and this this is quite interesting. You become quite an illiberal person. In fact, sacrifice becomes a centerpiece of what you do. For example, you might be around, uh, like you, you have lots of friends, and your friends, you know, you're you're the boys, and you want to fuck. You know, you want to go out there and go on Tinder and bang bitches. You want to bang hoes, and you want to uh, get your get your your fat ass girls and like go out to the club and pull them and all this stuff. And you know, like who are you to restrict the instinct. This is often what we think about Nietzsche, who, like, Nietzsche would be like, yeah, go, Dionysus, man, just go and bang the girls in the club or something like this. But of course, this is not at all what he's saying. He's observing quite clearly that a good, strong culture would have quite stringent restrictions on the instinct of sex. Now, what you notice, maybe this would be a contrast to an awful lot of what you call moral puritism that you see coming from, like, the online theologians and stuff like this, is that um, Nietzsche is not necessarily saying you restrict the gratification of sex for because it's moral not to have sex, it's moral not to, to keep your dick in your pants or something like this. He's not he's not being he's not being um, facetious like that. He's saying very clearly that if you set up an ideal such as beauty in your life, if you set up an ideal such as we could say liberalism or liberty you you it, like it's like i want to have sex i'm free to have sex hedonism bro like just let me just get out stop being so prudish just get out of the way stop being so christian man just let me go have sex and of course this leads to decadence this leads to a decay because you'll fuck anything that moves and then of course you'll fuck dirty girls and, and good-looking girls and if fuck a collection of them you'll probably be sterile in the way you do it and basically it leads to, to a collapse on the higher values the beauty gets run away because People waste themselves, but of course, if you have this ideal of beauty, this illiberal ideal of beauty, which is setting a high standard, and then you go and you try to have sex with girls, you're going to be extremely selective. Like, when you're with a girl, you're going to be deciding a thousand different things at once. Is she has she got long term thinking inside of her? Is she beautiful? Is she in, like is she instinctively beautiful, or is this some type of dress up? Is she actually do I have actually taste here? Because you'll see an awful lot of dudes when it's this is a weird thing they get into um like picking up girls and stuff like this and they go and they fuck like animals and they start to develop this taste for like a kind of like slut like girl i don't know how to describe it but she like you know her boobs sag or hang out or something like that she like has caked makeup and stuff like this and she's like you know I, i don't know how to describe it but it's almost like the archetype of the 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 primordial great mother begins to show up and they they start to chase towards this it's a very strange thing but again, if you were to choose beauty above all and restrict your instincts for gratification based on this, you're holding things to a higher value, you're essentially performing eugenics. You would you would operate differently. Now, how that would lead to your sexual choices is quite interesting because you might... You know, you might turn around and find the most handsome man, and and eugenically have him have twenty f- females or something like this, and have you know set up a breeding program that would sort of maybe fit in with something like this. Again, it's a restriction and a satisf- satisfaction or something like that, or maybe the way a people, and this is really important when Nietzsche is suggesting, like when a culture or a people or a family or a race are in a good are in good shape and they're congruent and they've they've developed standards and taste and they're aiming towards those things they will quite naturally begin to make these type of selections and it will be present in the men and the women and the women will be you know preparing themselves to be the ideal the beautiful and the men will be doing the, the same thing and they'll be coming together on these principles seeking these higher values and they probably won't even be that conscious of it now france is uh, just a fantastic example of this because france is was one of the was the first First country after, first nation, first people after Rome fell to properly civilize into a, a nation and an empire. And for that reason, it became the biggest empire in Europe. It was bigger than Germany, it was bigger than all the other ones. And basically, up until the Industrial Revolution, France was the big dog in Europe. And um, it was the very famous uh, military powerhouse of Europe as well. Like Napoleon uh, inherited an incredible army. And in, overall, France was. The, the place that had, you know, the largest population, largest farms, largest food, and then therefore it led to the possibility of the highest culture because there was the most amount of people there, the most amount of health there. And so they actually developed quite a cultured society. Nietzsche loved France. He saw them as extremely sophisticated and stylish and and, and, and everything. And through long periods of France's history, they obviously developed out this style. The French style is famous around the world for their, they're famous for being a stylish people. And during these periods of their history, they're extremely eugenic in the way that they operated and extremely stringent and strict. And everything had to be done well. And had to, everything had to be done with, with, with grace and with smoothness and with style. It's like the way when you listen to classical music, you, you sit down and you listen to it and you realize that this, this is phenomenally sophisticated. Like everything is done with tact and elegance and smoothness and it took centuries and centuries and and centuries of development to get that music up to that standard. In the 19th century, classical music sort of presented itself at a peak of, of gloss and style, and it was phenomenal to listen to. But of course, it, the, the movement of classical music, as we understand it, probably like began back in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, really. It really took root around about the Renaissance and really started to pick up after that. Um, and it's the same thing with somewhere like France. For hundreds and hundreds, even not thousands, but hundreds of years, they they were working on the way they spoke. Like the French language is the most elegant language in in on on earth at this point and they this is this has been crafted after hundreds of years the way they eat the way they dress their 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 sense of themselves as a, a, as a response to this like france is famous for being extremely snobbish and chauvinistic about france and it's something that i actually love about them because they have a strong sense of themselves in these type of things france was um profound in all sorts of different ways because of this long process of 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 of, of sacrifice and restriction and this is not to say that these things can necessarily need to be anti-Christian or anything like that. France was a highly Catholic country, although it kind of became a bit atheist during the later stages of its existence. But the thing is, is that it it doesn't really matter. It's more about the values that the people have in themselves instinctively that they're pursuing towards. This is a great place to find yourself in, where uh, the people around you, the culture you're a part of, its instincts are orientated towards beauty. It's It's a very profound thing to happen. And, and so delicate and rare—it's something to really think about. Like, how would you create that? How it's such a—it's such a thing that's out of your hands. It takes generations to build up this um, c- collective sense of standards, you know. Because in France, everybody was doing it to each other. The peasants in France probably held themselves with more sophistication and class than you know the most of people, most people's upper classes around the world. Like, you know, the French peasants food was probably of a higher standard of cuisine than anywhere outside of like outside of France, because it was so prominent all around the culture. It saturated the culture as a whole. There was the sense of being French was to be high standard and elegant and classy. And this stuff has happened before. For example, in Rome, the standard of living achieved in Rome was not replicated. uh, If you measure certain values, it was not replicated until the 17th the 18th century in London. You're gonna have to forgive me. There's a big boat outside that keeps blowing its horn. It's a uh, it's angry at my beauty posting. So it's like, all right, here I'm gonna, I'm gonna horn post. I'm gonna horn post back and shut this guy up. Now to stress this point, if you look around the society you live in, with it's highly. Soft hedonistic liberal values, and you look at the way people perform and act, and this is actually quite a, a harsh critique of Americans. And I, I love the Americans, but it's something that you can sit and chew upon. Um, American culture is not is not ascendant. It's it's actually an equalizing entropic culture. It's not something that rises up to a standard. It doesn't set standards high and i don't think this is cuz the american people are weak and all this i think it's just that certain pernicious parts of american culture have achieved ascendancy over others and what i mean by this is that like for example you go over to america and you even see, see the way language is evolving in america like language is evolving towards um it's like primitivism you know you go in there now and like people are people in america are like what up it's lit yo bro ah uh. Like they're they're literally not they're not articulating sophisticated sentences. You go over to France and people speak with this almost like an upper class way of speaking. It's very different. It's very they're they're, they're snotty about themselves. They they take themselves very seriously. Whereas the Americans pride themselves in their sort of uh, um, free thinking, openness, and their, their permission their permissiveness towards sloppiness. You know, and they're sort of like I'll accept your your spirit for who you are, and I'm not going to impose any standards upon you. And, and this seems like a very nice thing to do like it seems very very good but actually it's 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 decadent as living hell it's 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 horrific it's it's pulling the quality of the people downwards and so american culture now is getting to the point of like it's famous around the world for for representing sort of like ignorance you know people are like americans don't know geography and all this and it's not it's not like this is a problem because there's americans out there who are extremely intelligent and sophisticated so i think a quote i heard before was that America is the only place where you could find the least healthy people in the world live alongside the most healthy people in the world. So you go to America and you'll find these like eugenic athletic um, specimens, you know, people who are just like absolute shocking perfections of the human race. And then beside them, you'll have this like, you, you couldn't, you just simply cannot believe how someone could get so fat. And they're like right beside this person. And they'll be like, yeah, this is my brother. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like what's going on in this place? So I guess it's radically, quarterly leads to this sort of self-select But the problem then becomes is that if a people are to collectivize and form a culture, the culture needs to possess inside of itself this set of standards. And American culture cannot impose those illiberal standards upon people because American culture is premised on liberalism. It's premised on being permissive, this type of thing. And as I've said before, this premise is most easily seen in, in sex and appetite for sex and expression of sex and the fear of, of, of imposing restrictions on sexuality and these type of things. The The most forward-thinking way, the, the most revealing way you can look at this stuff is look at the people around you or look at people you know and go in and just ins- inspect their attitude towards sex. You'll have some people who are extremely prudish and this will be a sort of interesting thing to watch because it's moralized prudishness. You know? This is the the sort of conservatism without higher ideals. It's 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 like a fear based conservatism. And then you have people who are sort of liberal, the liberal prudes who will sort of, you know, want um, want you to just let them fuck like you know uh, like animals and, and children at some point and you're like Jesus dude it's like calm the fuck down or like are you are you restricting my expression of my emotions you're like Jesus Christ dude no we're gonna have to shoot you if you don't stop like what are you doing and in the middle of that it's like a third position a a a break out of the false dichotomy there's a way of seeing things where you establish ascendant standards you establish a higher choice and it's like well choose via beauty you know don't fuck beautiful girls often and there's only so many beautiful girls there's like you know a 10 percent there's one out of every 10 girls are beautiful so don't fuck anything that moves fuck the best you know and go and like you know blow lots of very healthy eugenic loads inside of her and make lots of beautiful children please instead of just being a decadent degenerate that's just like moving after every hole that you see and the problem with that is that the the restrictions that you'd have to place upon yourself are absolutely phenomenal you know, even when you're by yourself, like guys can be sitting there by themselves and it's quite easy to look for a hooker. It's quite easy to go out there and just go on Tinder or something like that and do something dirty and nasty. But what would it mean to be able to sit down and say, even when I'm by myself, I'm not going to corrupt my standards. I'm going to hold myself to standards. I keep, I keep my eye on the prize, this type of thing. How, what type of culture would that be to be a part of something like this, this type of restriction? And, and this this is if this was present and imagine if you had a group of people who had this style of thinking, extremely high standards thinking, raising your standards on everything, pursuing illiberally what is high and understanding that this is good and any other complaints against this is ugly and fallen and evil and pathetic. And this is ultimately what Nietzsche means by a reevaluation of morals, is that where this moral attitude sets up, there's the fucking horn post again, where it is moral attitude sets itself up, this instincts inside the people, these urges to go to, to to look down upon things appears. This is where you really start to see a people develop ascendancy and become good and become strong and develop a culture worthy of fighting for, capable of defeating enemies and all these type of things. So I say all this because ultimately, what you see with stuff like the culture war and people complaining about, for example, the leftist cultural Marxists, what cultural Marxism is doing is uh, is demoralizing and dropping the standards of society and pushing society and pulling society away from beauty. And people will complain in a religious ideological sense what's going on, and people will complain maybe in, in all sorts of political senses of what's going on. But truly, the actual antidote to this is to overcome these problems Instincts within yourself, because most conservatives, most reactionaries are decadents themselves. Most people have low standards themselves, and Marxists are just people who have the sort of zest to go all in, and they're decadents. They have the zest to go all in in the direction that everything is trending. You often hear people say stuff like conservatives are um, liberals uh, with the with a speed limit meaning that they're going towards where liberals are going. They're just taking their time and doing this type of stuff. And this is really important to keep in mind because the actual change in direction is the culture war, the the anti-cultural Marxism, if you will. And this is the point, is it's not reactionary. The, the understanding of going in a different re- direction is about standing on this new frame, this new way of seeing things, and choosing values, choosing new gods that become ascendant and force you to sacrifice everything towards them, including freedom, including... um. All all sorts of things, including money, profit, all these type of things, including, um, you know, just being open to everybody, openness, tolerance, indolence, opinion, all these type of habits, the past, that your preferences. All this must become sacrificed towards something that is higher and beautiful and true and good. And this is the problem is that it's massively costly. And to be honest, most people just don't have it in them to do this. They have too many rationalizations holding them back from this reality. But this reality is, is ultimately the direction you need to go. And so if you're there, lost in your little um, your little, deracinated individual isolation, you can begin, obviously, by raising your standards. But the true ascendancy has to be reached when you can find people who have the same, these same instincts inside of them. And that is hard to find. But something that you can attain and can be done. And, of course, it begins with intention. This is the thing. It, be, it begins with focus. Uh, people have all sorts of solutions to our problems. They talk about ideology, religion politics, all this type of stuff. But ultimately, the goal is to create a beautiful culture, a beautiful society. This is the thing that lasts throughout the ages. It's also the ultimate form of power. The Jews and their mode of consciousness dominates the Western world because their culture was stronger than roman culture and defeated roman culture in rome and created the christian judeo-christian worldview and of course the french despite the fact that they don't really hoist or as much power as say the americans or the english right now they still have incredible um a captivating power over so much so much of the world and on and, and, and us as well it's very hard to culturally erode france because the french are ultimately chauvinist for themselves. Their culture is so strong that it's it's where I see the biggest reaction against everything going on. So beauty is no accident. Beauty is something that's intentional and chosen. And when you go through that great long process of acquiring it and you finally attain it, you gain something of incalculable value that can last far longer than just a century. It can last millennia, just like with the Jews' culture lasts Thousands and thousands of years and influences almost everybody's thought in the entire world, which is incredible. So following on from our last statement, we're talking about the question of culture and beauty. A lot of people talking about the culture war. What do we do about the culture war? And of course, the difficult assertion for most people is to embrace and accept and understand That the things that we consider valuable, such as a culture, and a culture is literally like such a, it's a piece of jargon. What this represents is a set of people who have within them instincts geared towards making things beautiful instead of tolerance, which is essentially the act of entropy becoming operant within a people's habits. In order for something like that to happen, you have to take great, great pains and stresses and you have to postulate beauty and the good, the philosophical project, you have to postulate it as the ideal, you have to postulate it as worthy of doing and sacrifice everything towards it. You must not have other idols at the foot of beauty and tolerance and liberty and liberalism are false idols, golden calves that you cannot holster up on the same pedestal as beauty, truth and strength. Now, what, what is derivative of this is a suggestion by nature, it's quite a challenging one, uh, that, that goes against uh, another very common trope of our modern age, which is that, bro, you can, you know, the American dream, you can be whatever you want, you can be anything, you can be anything, bro, you can be anything, and the idea is it's the deracinated individualism, you can go, we live in a free liberal society where everybody is equal. So you can go from your little small town or your little house in a state or your little village, and you can go and 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 fully change your destiny and become someone new. And this idea is actually true. Like you can certainly change your social status with social mobility, but what is quite interesting is Nietzsche says you you cannot become beautiful in one lifetime. Everything good is an inheritance. Everything good is an inheritance. That which is not inherited is imperfect. It is simply a beginning. You, as a creator, and this is not bad, it's certainly demoralizing, but it's something you need to understand. You are not ever going to be the finished product. You can only be the start, especially in the position you find yourself now, where you've got the the entropic decadence of culture falling all around you. And if you want to create something beautiful, you're aiming 10 generations in the future, and you're looking to start now to create something that will manifest an Ubermensch in your legacy. And this is very, very interesting because this should uh, utterly destroy all senses of ego and all senses of, 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 of diva-ness that are present in you. A lot of people's instincts is to run to the cities and try to become a celebrity and become famous and make it about them. But who nowadays sits down and bites their lip and says, I'll do what is needful in order to set up the processes in order to establish ascendancy for generations forward, to set up a long, stretched-out inheritance, the most illiberal way of thinking possible. How do I give my children an unfair advantage that they can start upon? And how do I build up value that I can pass upon them so they can take that value and utilize it to, to go further and forward? Like an animal deciding all right, I'm going to spend this whole lifetime crafting the institution of vision, of eyes so that I can give it down to my ancestors and then what they will do or my, my progeny. and then what they will do is take these eyes and use them to develop you know color vision, which then the next set of people will use to develop um, movement vision, sense movement senses. The next will use use, use it to create hand or, or eye coordination and 10 generations down the line, you have this phenomenal beast. incredibly accurate motion and ways of was operating and this these these beasts don't start from zero that's foolish and they wouldn't get anywhere if they did some beasts start from zero but most pass down their their traits and their aptitudes and the most successful animals are the ones that have long extended periods of slow progress Everything good is an inheritance. No, this, is, this is a quote. Everything good is an inheritance, and that which is not inherited is imperfect. It is simply a beginning. And so if you want to talk about culture, I know I'm repeating that quote, but I'm going to keep repeating it for repetition's sake, to drill it into your head. The, the, if you want to talk about creating a great culture, this is precisely what Nietzsche is trying to point you towards here. In Athens at the time of Cicero, who expressed this surpri- surprise at the fact, The men and the youths were by far superior in beauty to the women. So Cicero was a Roman writer, around about Julius Caesar's time, and he goes to Athens and sees all these hot dudes. And he's like, what the absolute fuck? The girls are dog. Well, they weren't dogs, but they weren't as pretty as the men. What's going on here? And he was surprised. Nietzsche says, Yet Cicero didn't take into account what hard work and exertions the male sex had for centuries imposed upon itself in the service of beauty. We must not be mistaken in regards to the method employed here. The mere discipline of feelings and thoughts is little better than nil. It is in this that the great error of German culture, which is quite illusory, lies. <laughs> he's, so, he's so snarky towards the Germans. <laughs> um, the mere discipline of feelings and thoughts is little, little better than nil. The reality is that the body must be persuaded first. The strict maintenance of a distinguished and tasteful demeanor. The obligation of frequently frequenting only those who do not let themselves go is amply sufficient to render one distinguished and tasteful. In two or three generations, everything has already taken deep root. The fate of a people and of humanity is decided according to whether they begin culture at the right place, not at the soul, as the fatal superstition of the priests and half-priests would have it. The right place is the body. Demeanour, diet, physiology. The rest follows as the night by the day. This is why the Greeks remained the first event in culture. They knew and they did what was needful. Christianity, on the other hand, with its contempt of the body, is the greatest mishap that has ever befallen mankind. It's a very harsh statement, but again, this is Nietzsche reasoning from philosophical first principles and sort of repeating what I said in the previous thing about beauty, because it's the same type of thing. Two or three generations. He's thinking way longer than you. And he's saying, in order for something as ideal as Greek beauty to form, the handsome youths of Greece to form, and the the high culture of, of Athens and Greece that was so famed in Rome... High culture of Athens um, basically took over Rome. A lot of the Roman empires tried to be more Greek because it was so stylish. What is fascinating about this is that this was the, by the time the Greeks were reaching this sort of apex of beauty, um, they had long been conquered by Rome. The, the the kind of Greece of Alexander and all that had long been gone, centuries gone, but the habits that they had established in Greece, that they had beat into themselves through long generations of of exertion, they they had since been conquered. But they were still manifesting beauty. In fact, you can look at it like a male and feminine relationship. Rome was the sort of coarse, violent warriors, and Greece was like the civilized culture, the feminine force, feminine force. Nietzsche actually looked at Germany and France in the same way. He saw Germans as cultureless grugs who had a great will to power and creative potential. And basically, I'd say the ideal way he would have saw 20th century going was the Germans would have beaten the French and then had the humility or the savvy to allow the French and the Germans to marry together. And the French would become essentially the kind of culturing force that would actually educate the Germans, like a woman who fixes a man. And then the Germans would go on to actually develop culture and become decent leaders. But of course, this would require patience and humility, and he probably would have preferred them to do something like um, politics or, you know, maybe not so so a blunt, blunt crazy war like what went down. So this was uh, his thinking about this, that a masculine and a feminine culture can work together in this type of regard. Masculine tends to be blunt and lacking culture feminine cultures somewhere like Athens and Greece and France as we said and these, these are his ideals. He thinks the, he needs these to win. these are the things that matter. These are the things that reach their apex. this is where the great events happen, the things that we want the most happen. Now of course what he's suggesting is that the, the this, this result when this fruit is born off the tree, it begins sour of course for long periods of time, but when it finally appears ripe and successful. You, you people always grab it and pluck it out and be like, this is fantastic. And oftentimes, you know, the things that we treasure in this such just beauty of form and um, beauty of speech, beauty of articulation, clarity of thought and um, high culture and art. We, we obsess about the result, but we don't actually understand the premise that creates the result, the first principle. And he suggested a lot of people look at the expression of ideals and visions and thoughts and all this stuff and they, they see that the, you know, the things that we treasure so much is the intellect and speech and, and, and manner and demeanor and civilization. And we assume that this comes from like a soul of sorts, a, a set of ideals, a, an idealist view of the world, a platonic view of the world. And what we need to do is get the right ideas in our head. You know, just read the Constitution, you become a good person. Just take on board liberal ideals, and you become a good person. Oh, you're like, our nations are just the right ideas. That's what America is, the right ideas. This is what the Europe is, it's the correct liberal ideas. And that's what makes things powerful. And all people need to do is just embrace the right ideas, and they'll, they'll become like French people. They'll become cultured. But this is not true at all. This is just a complete incorrect... A mistake. It's like the way you look out into the reality. Now, I might trigger some flat earthers, but you look out into the world and the world looks flat. Maybe it is. The world looks flat and you say to yourself, all right, well, it must be flat then. But of course, counterintuitively, when you actually do various measurements, you start to see that the world has a bend to it. And this is, of course, discovering that just because we see something and we obsess about what we see doesn't mean it is necessarily the truth. Looks can be deceiving. And so this is the, the the situation here. We see the things we like, we consider them the soul. But in truth, the causal factor is the body, demeanor, diet, physiology. These are the foundations. There must be an evocation of a will to power and there must be a cultivation of strength, health, m- diet, manner, all these type of things and a set of habits that form this foundation. And a t- upon this firm life-giving energy supplying foundation can we build the ascendant idealism beauty and these higher tools this higher culture france was a great military culture first of all the french knights were great warrior kings great great fighters of france the french diet was famous for its its quality same with the greeks and what has to happen is you have to—it's—it's—it's it's, it's eugenic. He's talking about a sort of Spartan eugenic attitude here, where you—you—they're like crews of Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilders, getting themselves in phenomenal shape, beating the body into shape, sacrificing at the, the feet the the seat of the ideal of what beauty and the body is, in order to create intelligence. And intelligence flows from this, you know. When you have a strong body, a strong mind comes with it. These things are all correlated, and of course there needs to be a spirit inside of you to will this. And that's maybe the spiritual side of things. But the body is the focal point where you're going to craft things. It's like crafting your avatar in the metaverse. You must focus on that first. And great mistakes were made when we, through Christianity, became platonic. In fact, Christianity conquered Greece in its primary sense. Greece was where Christianity took root in its most profound sense. The Bible is written in Greek. And Christianity was Platonism for the people. It was the introduction of idealism the introduction of nogginism, the introduction of thinking about things abstractly, literally to the point of of pontificating other worlds. And hey, maybe there are other worlds. I'm like, you know, too much of a grug to know. But you can see the problems with Christian culture. You can see the tilt Christianity puts on the world. It pulls you away from the first principle of the body. And it actually disempowers your ability to organize around making strong bodies. And over long periods of time, the bodies become weaker because people are so obsessed with the idealism of Christianity. People, people forget about this. People, despite Christianity, often have to fight for this. For example, in England, there was a movement called muscular Christianity, because most Christians don't have. They're not getting brainwashed to believe in body exceptionalism. Instead, they're they're. Thought actually ca- to counter signal that they're told that magic words and, and and prayers and these type of things will save them and change them and fix them and idealize their soul, but in truth, it is the stress and power of um of idealizing the body, the the stress of eugenically shaping the body that actually changes people and fixes people and saves people. This was a great great problem when Christianity came into the West. It banned the Olympics, for example. Why did it ban it? Because it was a decadent beha- pagan behavior, and this was the arrival of Jewish. Hebrew strict monotheism with its um you know autistic morality that castrated the Western spirit, which was the old pagan spirit. The Greeks were shameless in their nakedness. They idealized the body and had statues of themselves, but naked, all over the cities. And this was this was literally an argument in early Christianity is that should they ban art altogether? Should they ban religious art altogether? And they tore down these statues because they were considered absolutely shocking abominations of sin and disgusting and it was only like until the renaissance that you really saw this stuff properly rebirth that people could um, embrace nakedness and all its its glory and beauty embrace the body is what that means but christianity was against that Noganism was against that and this caused an awful lot of problems the olympics got banned for a thousand uh, over a thousand years and the idea of cultivating the body, it was done despite Christianity, but it's still at the same time, it, it was not centerpiece. And as we drift into modernity, Christianity has so long had its super ordinance over our minds that we've long forgotten this first principle. We can't even see past it to understand that this is our problem. Our idealis- idealism, Nogginism, Jungianism, Symbolism, Platonism, whatever you want to call it. It's all it's all rooted in the same thing. The, and I'm, it's not just a beat of Christianity. It's the philosophical schools as well. They make the same mistake. And the, the kind of question is that if you want to develop a... If you want to fight a culture war, if you want to change the West, save the West, understand where you start. This is basically what Nietzsche is saying. If you wanted to save the West, you would begin with a obsession about health obsession about gathering together a conglomerate of um ridiculous warrior bodybuilders and getting all this stuff together like ideally the military would be the place where all this stuff would happen but obviously you probably won't be able to seize the military but it, it shows you where things have to begin and then when it comes to things like art and all this through art the celebration of man must be ascertained and of course this is what we're going to explore next Now, moving forward from the idea of the body must be persuaded and how this relates to creating culture and how this is so jarring towards the idea of, like, saying, for example, something, accusing something like Christianity of being the worst thing that ever happened to mankind, it's it's a pretty shocking thing, but let's let's try think about what Nietzsche is suggesting here and why he's suggesting this. and I guess he's he's almost acting like a life coach for high- level creatives who are you know the the leaders of the world, the leaders of the world order and people who get to make choices about all right what habits should we encourage inside people? what habits should we promote inside people? And of course the the kind of problem of the modern world is that there's a, a hands-off approach where you know nobody imposes, discipline upon anybody else unless it's related to tolerance so the only discipline you ever experience is that if you're not tolerant enough so basically you're beaten into being open-minded that's about the height of it and you're beaten into paying taxes but you're not, for example, you know, beaten into becoming strong and juicy and healthy. That is something that's quote unquote left up to you. You're left free to choose yourself. And there's virtue in that. There's power in that because then you, a lot of people will self-select and create a sort of true set of people who are powerful. But most people are definitely going to not select. And the problem with this is, again, it comes down to this culture war problem. If you're, if you're going to build a culture, if you're going to be part of a culture, if you want to be involved in something like civilization, which is a collective of people doing stuff based on habit and, and all these type of things. You're going you go at some point you're gonna to have to share among each other the idea of collective responsibility. And then on top of that, reduce the concept of freedom and tolerance. And and understand that freedom, which is valuable, is preserved through intolerance. As Aristotle said, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of dying society. And so what, what Nietzsche is pointing out is that we have this problem where, you know, 2000 years ago, like the, the, the way that the, the history of the world, you had a very naturalistic, embodied pagan world, right? And pagan, again, is a slander word. It comes from Pagani, which basically means country bumpkin. It, it literally means redneck or racist. It's got the same meaning and then um you know the pagans of the world these were the ancient romans and the hellenics and and they created a astoundingly beautiful culture which is just unarguable uh, you can't argue against it it's it's it stands as a victory and when you look at that it it's justified by itself christianity didn't give you know, Western people or Western civilization. It didn't give it civilization. It didn't give it, you know, the ability to be philosophical and right. It didn't give them beauty or health. It didn't give them high art. It didn't give them power. It didn't give them military power. It didn't give them organization. It didn't give them the family unit. It didn't give them morality. It didn't give them any of these things. Christianity is not responsible for these things. These things were all present in Rome and in Greece and in many of the cultures long before Christianity came along. Christianity is the birth of idealism or higher thinking or philosophy as a primary purpose in people. Nietzsche would call it a disciplining force. Christianity takes a wild pagan animal the barbarians running through the German forests and forces them into a monastery and forces them into their intellect and forces them to begin to focus on taming their instincts and giving prepondency towards their reason and their rationality and their intellect. And it's it's about bullying the body into submission so that the mind and and patience and and virtues like calmness can become superordinate. And in some sense, it's a profoundly powerful disciplining tool that, that beats out of a population, spiritually beats out of a population, um, you could say uh, aggressive habits and barbarian habits and, and forms them and shapes them into something that is far more civilized and disciplined and tamed. It's a taming tool. you know And the way it does this is it, it, it basically it favors the prefrontal cortex over all impulses and instincts. So it is like it's got power. It's, it's got purpose, it's got use. And in some sense, you might even say it it is beautiful and it can lead to high cultures. It's got ample evidence that Christianity worked for high cultures. So you can't just discard it in and of itself. But you also must look at what it is. And so you have something interesting happen about 2000 years ago is the entry into the world of this scorn for the embodied, scorn for the impulsive, scorn for the, the will, the energy. And Christianity rests on its laurels a little bit because the health of the barbarian Germans and French and Nordics and uh, Englishmen and and all, all that stuff, the, the, their health is so huge because they have been barbarians for thousands of years that Christianity can sort of latch onto them and their instincts, despite being Christian, will carry themselves forward. They bend Christianity into their will because they've got such good, strong instincts, such fire in their belly that they can craft Europe in in despite of it. Because... You know, Charlemagne, the great creator of Europe, Christian king, he wasn't Christian in his behavior. He ran around with a sword, ripping pagans apart, killing the natives of Europe. He he beat them into submission. He was a warrior knight, Germanic warrior knight, who created France. Same with the, the English, you know. Say, like, all the great cultures of the West were were barbarians in Roman times. And they lifted Christianity and turned it into the western re- religion but it wasn't christianity again who created that it was the the instinctive energy within the german people basically who went to england france germany russia sweden north italy and all this type of stuff north spain these these were these were the the great creator forces the tyrannical creators and they had in them strong creative instincts and when you look at how Christianity operated—it was always attempting to tame them, and they were fighting against it in spite of it. For example, chivalry is such a great thing to study, because chivalry was a load of knights running around Europe beating the living fuck out of each other, trying to organize the wor- the world order, the European order. And these were like essentially super athletes. You should see, go up on the YouTube and look up knights. Some guy sprinting in a in a suit of armor. Suit of armor weighs like you know. 20 kilos or something like this, and this guy puts it on. So go on, put on a 20-kilo bodysuit yourself and just go sprint and roll around and all this type of stuff. It's unbelievably hard. You know, you fatigue so fast. And these knights were dressed up in these things, running around fighting each other like elite warrior kings. This is what the Germans' instincts were. And this was firing through, and these knights were taking over entire principalities and then taking for themselves several wives and mistresses and and all this type of stuff. And then, of course, Christianity comes in with chivalry, which is essentially the priests and the women conglomerating together to discipline the knights and of course it, it calms them down and it is a disciplining force you know and it's trying to put a put a, a leash upon them and pull them down pull them down into control it's the feminine instincts trying to control the masculine instincts and the boisterousness of the male instincts is not necessarily good by itself you know it's it's, it's important to understand what they are is all i'm saying you know, it's important to understand that those boisterous male instincts that created knights and the, the warrior spirit of the Germans is is was, was present and there and ultimately the fuel that drove European culture. Christianity was the civilizing and feminine force, which tamed that. But of course, what happens over 2,000 years is it can over tame. Maybe at the start, it was in this beautiful blend where it was both aggressively energetic, but also taming at the same time. But now that process of being being intellectualized, being Christianized, being philosophized, being tamed, has now reached a... It, it, the balance has gone out of whack. And so some people will say stuff like, oh, it's... Like, w- w- what is happening? Even, even, you know, nowadays you might say, oh, it's the Antichrist that it's taking on board. But maybe what's happening now is that Christianity is bearing its final fruit. It is completely tamed everything embodied out of the European people and all they've got left now is a husk of apathy and tolerance and they can't stand for themselves and they can't believe in themselves anymore it's a shocking thing to think I'm not I'm not sure what you think I'm not asking you to believe this but this is a way of looking at the world that it's really valuable to to chew on because it allows you to turn around and say to yourself, well, what is the operant decision about what to do? And as I said in the last, last section, the body is the place you must be persuaded. So what you see happening is then, this is, this is what Nietzsche pointed out, is that the, the place we're in now, we're not in ancient Rome where Christianity can just be chosen as the new thing. It's, it's an old thing at this point. And we're not in the point where we're dealing with a load of barbarians. What we're dealing with now is an overcivilized population and we need to awaken in them barbarian instincts again. It, it's more valuable to stop civilizing people and try awakening them some form of instinctive response. We're now in the, literally in the opposite place. We're like the, the Germans, the Europeans. We, we are like the Romans who have been over-civilized and are about to give up. Who, and the, the Romans who got conquered by the Germans, who were barbarians. And this is a huge flip of everything. And so Nietzsche proposes that what is laid out in front of us is a great challenge, where we will have the last man the fallen man, the man who has been over civilized and over tamed, the post-Christian man, the man who had spent 2,000 years being Christianized, and now even Christianity becomes too liberal, uh, too illiberal for him, and now he's going to fully embrace the hedonic, pleasure-loving shadow Christianity, that is the fallen uh, Antichrist Christianity, and become this decrepit golem like Last Man, this butchered entity of the Industrial Revolution, this entirely anti-embodied figure who is so trapped in his prefrontal cortex from all these thousands of years of training that he has no sense of himself at all. And all he does is stuff his gullet and go into the metaverse. And this is the, the final fruit of Western civilization because of its errors and mistakes. But it also presents us a final opportunity. Because with all the power and and success and all these things that we have, all this industrial production we have now, and this ability to organize, we could, if we wanted to, see this trend for what it is, and then flip it on its head and establish a first principle and begin to operate based on uh, forward, from, uh, based on this, and of course, what this would be is. a a process where we try to go towards the Ubermensch. And the conclusion of Zarathustra is that you cannot become the Ubermensch. Again, deracinated individuals believe, oh, I'll be the Ubermensch. That's not what Nietzsche says. Nietzsche, at the end of Zarathustra, they all stand and look at each other and basically say, fuck, none of us are going to be the Ubermensch. We can only be the bridge to the Ubermensch, which is what Nietzsche was saying about inheritance and generations. And so what we, what me and you do, what Nietzsche was saying to you and to us lads who are sitting around being like, what the fuck is going on? Nietzsche's sitting and looking at you and saying, listen, bro, this is what's going on. This body problem is what's going on. And if you want to create the future, if you want to create the ubermensch, if you want to see things, if you want to see us go back towards something ideal and good, because everything in the past that you have seen as good has not not been to do with ideology, not been to do with strict Christianity. In fact, Christianity has been counter-signaling that, and you just won't accept it properly because you've been listening to Jordan Peterson, and it's not been to do with philosophy, it's not been to do with Plato, it's not to do with Socrates. The things that you idealize, the beauty of the Renaissance, the beautiful statues and figures, the beautiful great high art, the beautiful great stories of warriors and kings and generals, none of that stuff is about neuroticism and intellectualism. All of that things, all of the things that were great about the past, were always illiberal, instinctive, embodied warrior energy. That's what you need to evoke again. And if we want to be, if we want to create something down that direction, we need to focus on going that direction. And what, what you and I are, is we're the, we're the first people to really start to wake up to all these problems and correctly diagnose them and see them and correctly get the first principles. And so th- what this makes us is a great opportunity. We're the artist tyrants who sit around in our little group and come up with a new vision of the world. We're the radical idealists. We're in fact, you know, using that faculty that Christianity and Platonism celebrate so much. We're using it, but we've grounded it to reality. We've grounded it to the first principles of reality, and we're using it to actually see what's going on and understand the the danger of our situation, and under, and understand the situation as it lays itself out in front of us. And we're adapting to the situation now so we can force it towards our ideals, towards what we believe it should be was what we feel it should be. And we believe in what we feel it should be because we are in connection authentically with our spirit and our will and our will to power. We've still got that barbarian instinct inside of us. And of course, if you don't have this, if you have not worked, if you have not imposed tyranny upon yourself and discovered your will to power and discovered your will to win, if you have not gone into a fight and proven that you want to punch through the pain to make sure you come out on top, if you have not found that in yourself, your mind cannot be trusted. This is an important thing to keep in mind. This is why Nietzsche, before he even wrote any, any of this stuff, he went to, to the mountains and he he forced himself to overcome his sickness. He was a decrepit little incel degenerate who couldn't get girls. And so he went to the mountain and he started to march around the mountains. He read about like Julius Caesar and Napoleon. He read Julius Caesar used to like, uh, have epileptic head, headaches and Julius Caesar would just take his, his army, uh, his legions on a march when that happened. And so Nietzsche was like, fuck it, I'm getting this stuff happening as well. So I'll just go marching. So he marched around the mountains. This is where he came up with Zarathustra. So Nietzsche's like a mountain marcher, a mountain incel, running around, you know, mountain incel marcher, like coming up with these crazy fucking psychotic thoughts before he goes and hugs a horse. Like, what a crazy bastard. Like, why are we, why, why am I even making like like hours of content on him? What am I doing? Anyway, um, Nietzsche was assertive in this. He was saying that this is, this is where we are. We're standing here and we're the creators and we've gone and, and pushed in ourselves, proven in ourselves, seen in ourselves. We're the warrior poets who have seen this. And then we, we know what we are and we trust what we are and we recognize idealism. When you see beauty, it's it's inarguable. You see it exactly what it is. The philosophy and the blatherbraining of Western philosophy and all this stuff, it's just, it's nogginism, jargonism. It's it's whistling past the graveyard. It doesn't succeed in its project. It has failed. The civilization we're reaping right now is proof of failure, proof that it did not work. And Nietzsche's saying, if you would like this failure is going to get worse, people are going to turn into bug men, pod men, Golems to plug themselves into the metaphors and fully escape into idealism because reality is too hard on them. But what would it mean for you as an artistic tyrant to seize this reality and push it in the right direction? And of course, this is the big question. And so Nietzsche, was, and I guess the, of these five episodes I want to do... Um, I'm going to end with the discussion about the the artist and and how Nietzsche reframes the artist not as this sort of soft, express yourself, this type of thing. He twists it into a illiberal, savage, a barbarian and a creative tyrant, a a monster, a male energy present in the artist. Because most artists nowadays have that female instinct about them because they are golems, they are last men. But many artists were barbarians of spirit as well. There's, it's very possible to have this type of energy. The, the men of the Renaissance were savages, crafting stone within their image, imposing ideal upon the fallen world. And you need to find that self in you, because like I, it's fun to talk about the warrior energy and going around beating people up and being mean to people and bullying people in school and stuff like this. But that's not really it, you know. There's more tact to what we're trying to do. There's more tact about what what we're going to need. The creative artist tyrants are going to have to form something that's intellectually stimulating, that speaks to the soul of man, that awakens the spirit of man. It's going to have to be a creative endeavor it, to create new cultures, to create new art, to create new artistic forms. Of course, a side of this will be the warrior energy, but you're marrying that to a creative energy too. There, dreams, pre, pre, pre ordinate culture, that's definitely not the right word. I'm going on such a flow and I'm like tripping up. To give, for example, the Jewish culture, like the Jews have done very well currently. They're reaping great rewards after the last 2,000 years of struggle. And probably the most sophisticated thing about them is that their ability to seize and maintain control and maintain consistency of their religion and their worldview and their dreams, their culture stands superordinate. Christianity is premised on their culture. They, they've, they've done incredible things with just not allowing their culture to die under any cost. Whereas the Romans lost their culture to the Jewish culture. The pagan worldview, the Hellenic worldview died to that, and it was defeated. And the Romans essentially were conquered by the Jewish vision, which is so fascinating. The Romans, the masculine, third-dimensional um, chads, conquered Judea, but Judea conquers Rome's mind. And you have this inversion of the whole world, as Nietzsche said. And all of West, Western Europe, the, like Christianity spread out and, and did that work, did that needful work of conquering the um, pagan religions, the Gallic religions, Celtic religions, the Germanic religions, the Nordic religions, the Russians. They were all, all those things were beaten out of them and, and, and banished. And the dreams of their vision of the world was eradicated. I know the scientists are rising up creating new dreams and new visions of the world, which is eradicating Christianity. And these are all profound things to think about. And I guess what you're asking, or what your job is, is can you establish a first principle? A dream that celebrates the ideal of a beautiful body, an ascendant body, instead of what you see an awful lot of the dreams pouring out of all sides of things, which, which, which celebrate the fallen body, the fallen man, the struggling man, the suffering man, the failing man. So this is Nietzsche on artistic power. Concerning the psychology of the artist, for art to be possible at all, that is to say, in order that an aesthetic mode of action and of observation may exist, a certain preliminary physiological state is indispensable, ecstasy. This state of ecstasy must first have intensified the susceptibility of the whole machine, otherwise no art is possible. All kinds of ecstasy, however differently produced, have this power to create art, and above all the state dependent upon sexual excitement. This most venerable and primitive form of ecstasy. The same applies to the ecstasy which is the outcome of all great desires, all strong passions, the ecstasy of the feast, of the arena, of the act of bravery, of victory, of all extreme action, the ecstasy of cruelty, the ecstasy of destruction, the ecstasy following upon certain meteorological influences, as for instance that of springtime, or upon the use of narcotics, and finally the ecstasy of the will, that ecstasy which results from accumulating and surging willpower, The essential feature of ecstasy is the feeling of increased strength and abundance. Actuated by this feeling, a man gives of himself two things. He forces them to partake in his riches. He does violence to them. This proceeding is called idealism. Okay, I'm going to pause on this for a moment. So he's, he's concerning the psychology of the artist. How does the artist happen? So what he's saying is the artist is a passionate, felt experience, a romantic love experience, a romantic, savage, barbarian experience. It begins at the passions inside. And you hear Christians talk about Jonathan Pajomi and him had a chant. This is what I actually saw in him is him describing that the Holy Spirit seizes him and expresses art through him. And I fully believe he's telling the truth. You know, And I don't want to say it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It might possibly be, and I'm probably going to get a serious spanking when St. Peter meets me from fucking making all these podcasts. But you can see that authentically, Jonathan gets the, gets the the grip of the Holy Spirit inside of him, and it causes him to erupt strong energy out of himself and strong speech. And, of course, what Nietzsche is saying is that there's, there's a, a huge array of different strong energies that you can grip to, strong ecstasies these are peak experiences for people think about the the experience of orgasm the most powerful ecstasy of all the most uh, highest representation of 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 success the most affirmative approach towards life when you come when you're blowing a fat load inside of a girl she's coming as well what is happening what is going on in that situation? When you're orgasming, what are you doing? The reason why it's happening, of course, life wants you to come inside her so that you can produce more life, but also it's it's a great triumph. It's life defeating death in that moment. It is the most spiritual triumph of all. It is tied to the the apex of human experience in some sense. Through through this most sacred and ancient be- behavior, you achieve conquest over all of death, all of time, all of suffering, all of pain. It is a big win. And when you come inside a beautiful girl, a girl that is an a, absolute joy of a mother, she's beautiful, well-formed, well-shaped, well-mannered, she's going to be a great mother and create a great strong child with you. This is such a huge victory. This is why when she's hot and you like her and you, you you love her and you feel that strong energy with her, you come hard and you feel great and you feel amazing. You feel like king of the world. And what happens inside of you is all your physiology goes sizzling. You get all these huge hormones and chemicals dumping because your body knows that victory has been attained. You've defeated death once again. And that's not an easy thing. A lot of people die. And so life wants to reward you with this. I must reward you with this feeling of victory and ecstasy. And this is why sex is so beautiful and such a subject for artists and such a subject of exploration and the, the torrent and madness of sex and the madness of love, which is what the muse is to an artist. This is why when an artist gets a girlfriend, he can often have these hugely stimulating creative experiences because he's he's close to this deep ecstasy. And these orgasms, this this bonding with her, it causes inside of him vivid and strong feelings, and he can grab onto those, grip onto those incredibly sacred feelings that justify his life and, and make him feel alive. This is ultimately what happens. He can he can grab this and represent it to the world, and he can lift these feelings up to the world and show these feelings, and and show the world in a very beautiful and tactful way, something that we all experience, but he can show it in a higher, more perfected way, a more consolidated and frozen way. He can, you know, make a great um, statue of power, a great statue of love, or a great painting of love, or, or, or all these type of things, or whatever it is, and capture those super strong emotions, and we can see in that something we all experience, and we can see in that that there are experiences in this life that justify all the pain and the suffering and the struggle. There are ways to overcome the struggle of life. And these experiences remind us of this. And artists do this. They moralize us. They return us to what we are. They remind us what we can attain, what we can be, what we can have. This is so important to understand. And then, of course, there's more ecstasies than just coming and love and sex and beauty and, and kissing and stuff like this and, and cutie stuff. There's also things of the outcomes of all great desires The ecstasy of the feast, you know, the ecstasy of celebration and joy. This is you could actually think of this like dance music, you know, like if you're going and you're partying, something has gone right in your life. You haven't been killed in war. You haven't been enslaved. You haven't been um, subject to immense cruelty. So something has happened that's good. So when you listen to like techno, like built into that music is a sort of ecstasy of joy, of the feast, of having fun. And lots of music represents this type of stuff. and This is what artists capture. They a- capture that ascendant feeling of of, of of dance, of joy, of the feast. Of course, uh, the artists that would capture... The, um, you'd see this an awful lot in old pagan statues, which is something we've drastically lost. You see this, for example, in Napoleon's paintings. The, the ecstasy of bravery, of victory, and of all extreme action. The ecstasy even of cruelty and of destruction. This is what we're talking about here is this, this assertiveness of the warrior. You know, the, the, the shot of Napoleon crossing the, the Alps to go into Italy. And he has a painting of this. This is, this is this incredible ecstasy in what Napoleon represented, which was balls, which is assertiveness, creative genius. This ability to be just a, a dazzlingly brilliant general, to take extreme actions and try conquer the entire world, conquer Europe and therefore the entire world this ecstasy of, of malice and danger and destruction. You even see this, for example, in... This is such a, a, an illiberal take, like the idea of us hurting someone and enjoying it. This is so hard for us to believe, so hard for us to get our heads in. But of course, in the ancient world, cruelty was not robbed of its innocence, as Nietzsche said, and people could kill people. They could, could kill people with joy, in fact. They could experience cruelty and experience destruction with relish. And there was something there was something innocent in that, something that you have to meditate on deeply and understand. And artists can show this when you see those ancient statues in the, in the ancient world. This is the type of stuff that Christians would rob of their innocence. They would try to point this out as proof that Rome was decadent and evil and wrong. And this is fair enough. Maybe it was. But this is how you look at this as them being incorrect, them being spiteful and resentful, them being wrong. This is the take. And this is not the libtard take, Richard Dawkins saying Christians are naive. No, this is this is the the true challenge, the true Steelman challenge of what Christianity complains about. This is not Richard Dawkins coming at them with some low resolution take. This is a very severe and well pointed argument. What what did what you see when um, when Medusa is getting killed by I think it's it's Argon. Um, or Perseus, that's who it is. I can't remember who it is. But anyway, you see those statues of Perseus killing Medusa. Look those up. Look up statues of Medusa getting beheaded. And you see in there immense relish and cruelty, relish in death, relish in destruction, relish in grabbing the hair of this evil bitch and slicing her head off and destroying her life, destroying her, annihilating her at his feet, using his sword to castigate her, castigate her, humiliate her and destroy her. This ecstasy of invoking malice upon her and releasing his will to power and releasing incalculable violence and beating her into a pulp, destroying her and eradicating her life permanently, invoking death upon her. The inverse of orgasm. Orgasm is the celebration of your life. But what about murder and death? What about killing? What is that? That is about finalizing an enemy's life, finalizing someone else and embracing the extremity of that. To annihilate a competitor is to, in some sense, inversely guarantee your ability to move forward in life. And so there's great ecstasy in this. And you see this in lots of different statues. Hercules defeating all those those enemies of his. There's other ecstasies he talks about, ecstasy of the will, ecstasy of accumulating, surging will to power. But I think you get my point, that these extreme passions are what we what we see and what we feel. And, and what these artists do is that these artists grab onto these passions because we we all experience these to certain levels and and these artists they 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 seize upon these and they they extrapolate them out and flesh them out. So for example that feeling of conquering an enemy like Perseus did to Medusa and uh, an, in, an in, indomitable en- enemy as well like someone that's hard to defeat Medusa could stern, turn people into stone but Perseus figures out a way to get a shield and and, and, and shine back a reflection at him at herself so that he can run up and, and, and kill her. This is great in innovation and genius and it's it's representing that that time when we we figure out a smart way to beat someone in our life, so beat a problem. And so what the artist does is the artist grabs this feeling or he finds this feeling himself or he feels it in the subtle way that we all do and he he grabs it and he he expands it inside of himself and he 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 lets it take him over and he projects it onto a canvas of sorts, maybe a, a painting, or we can think of like a stone as the most simple one. And this is the sort of same thing that happens with all these ecstasies. Like when in sex, what you're doing is you're seizing a woman and you're you're this the feeling inside of you of arousal builds up, the ecstasy of arousal builds up, and you grab her and you seize her, and you you literally like uh, destroy her you 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 ex- express yourself you force yourself upon her in some sense and force her to partake in your reality you literally when you come inside her her destiny is permanently altered to align with you you become the father of of the child within her you impregnate her you change her life forever you have permanently changed her life and you're you're reshaping her and you're taking her and giving her a destiny and giving her a meaning and giving her a purpose in a child you're, you and and it's completely predicated on you and you're making something happen to her. And you're assuming that your will is justified to take her destiny and, and push her reality forward. And you don't argue against that. When you have the opportunity to fuck, most guys are going to take it. Because there's, there's, there's this, this desire, this artistic desire in you to, to produce, to create. And it's the same then when, when you claim um, a victory over someone by defeating them. It's the same energy that's born inside of you. You see someone who is an obstacle. You see a problem that is an obstacle. And you, you do violence to it. You break the obstacle. You take its life from it. You do something very extreme. You do violent to it. And you, you fix the world in the image of your desire. In the in reflection of the passion inside of you. This is called idealizing. Man gives himself to things. And, and so what happens with the artist is he, he feels this... Evocation build up inside of him, and then he forces the stone in front of him, the marble in front of him, to partake in his riches and his vision and his passion. He forces it to experience his will to power, and he does violence to it. He gets his chisel out and he chips away and smashes away at all the little pieces, and then he idealizes. He fixes the 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 shoddy stone, the big lump of stone with no form, just a big block of nature. But instead, he beats it into shape. He chips away. He slashes it into shape. And then it comes out with this crystallized, beautiful Apollonian form. He idealizes it. He makes it better. He makes it ideal. He makes it in the image of his passions. The god is born through his hands into the stone. Through man, gods give birth to themselves into the world. But it's through the savagery of their passions. And this is why Nietzsche is secretly the most godly man of all, the most pious man of all. Because truly to embrace God's will is to let him operate through you in his liberal way, illiberal way, of expressing himself into the world, of beating the world into the shape. Him, God, the ultimate artist, the creator of all things, expects you to operate the same. Nietzsche continues. Let us rid ourselves of a prejudice here. Idealizing does not consist, as is generally believed, in a suppression or an elimination of detail or unessential features. A stupendous Accentuation of the principal characteristics is by far the most decisive factor at work, and in consequence, the minor characteristics vanish. In this state, a man enriches everything from out of his own abundance. What he sees, what he wills, he sees descended, compressed, strong, and overladen with power. He transfigures things until they reflect his power, until they are stamped with his perfection. This compulsion to transfigure into the beautiful is art. Everything, even that which he is not, is nevertheless to such a man a means of rejoicing over himself. Through art, man rejoices over himself as perfection. It is possible to imagine a contrary state, a specifically anti-artistic state of the instincts. A state in which man impoverishes, attenuates and draws the blood from everything. And truth to tell, history is full of such anti-artists, of such creatures of low vitality who have no choice but to appropriate everything they see and suck its blood and make it thinner. This is the case with the genuine Christian, Pascal, for example. There is no such thing as a Christian who is also an artist. Let no one be so childish as to suggest Raphael or any homeopathic Christian of the 19th century as an objection to this statement. Raphael said, yeah, Raphael did, yeah. Consequently, Raphael was no Christian. So again, he's like bullying Christians as usual. Fucking not, yeah, Nietzsche, hug a horse, like suck a dick, Nietzsche, you. you fucking incel. But let's, let's see what he's trying to say here. So again, he's he's restating what I was suggesting about artists imposing upon reality, imposing upon the stone, the visions, the passions inside of themselves. Now, to understand really the kind of gripe he's having, it's an interesting thought. I haven't thought it through properly, but he's sort of suggesting that the people will say stuff like, inside the stone, there's already a perfect form. And all you're doing when you're, you're chiseling is you're chipping away the problems in order to find that perfect form that already exists in the world. And I think Nietzsche is trying to push against that and say, no inside of you there is this evocative powerful passion you are the source of will to power you are the god you are the the divine being you are the one possessed with the holy spirit you are the one possessed with the passions of the lord the passions of the gods the passions of the ascendant and you project that out onto the stone and imprison in the stone the potential of your will and you chase that and you beat away at it and you're not trying to chip away imperfections little tiny imperfections to release this you are imposing upon that a giant form that is energized and you release that form upon the, the stone and you do violence to the stone and shape it and what what it needs to be. And it's you, man who believes in himself, who, who understands himself, a healthy man, a truly ascendant man, sees his art this way. He's probably unconscious of it, but this is how he operates. And this thing where he was saying that, for example, Pascal was not a Christian and stuff like this, or uh, Raphael was not a Christian. You can look at, for example, um, the the statue of Michelangelo, um, statue by Michelangelo of King David. And Michelangelo said, he was a Renaissance Christian, like King David's a, a Jewish um, Old Testament figure you know, who kills Goliath. Uh, but Michelangelo said that this big lump of stone that he saw, he had this experience happen to him. He was feeling full of energy and he looked at the stone and he could see, he felt this huge passion evoke inside of himself of anxiety and and, and, and fear because he saw inside that stone there was an angel trapped in there. And of course, this is a God trying to be born through himself. He is the gods are in him. The gods are in Michelangelo. There's an angel in Michelangelo and it said, the portal to release me is through this stone. And so he ran over to the stone and he, he beat out of it this shape. He, he crafted, he freed the angel. And when the angel was free, the portal was complete. He made Michelangelo. And he was relieved. The ecstasy ended. The tension ended. It was an orgasm when he completed it. He slumped down. The vessel was complete. He had come into the world. And this was a great, great victory. And of course you look at Michelangelo now and you're like, you're just shocked at the level of beauty and details and it's just beyond belief. And of course this is again, this constant reiteration Nietzsche has that this is not, you know, you, you should study this process and understand it in its essence because this is what creates the true, the beautiful and the good and everything else is cope. And you should center your thinking on this and this is ultimately a pagan form of thinking. This is why he's so harsh on Christianity. And look, Whatever you stand on that, you should be able to sit down and seriously chew on this, because Nietzsche's no fool. He's not pointing this out because he's some resentful little shit. Okay, he's an incel, I get that. But at the same time, you've got to think about this. He's not incoherent. This is a very sophisticated way of thinking that most artists have experienced themselves, and good ones tend to experience a lot. Now, he... He, he says something, uh, this is probably one of his most beautiful lines that I think people miss out on, he, he says that the artist transfigures things until they reflect his power, until they are stamped with his perfection, so Michelangelo expresses upon the stone his, his will until it reflects back to him the strength, the angelic nature inside of him, the higher nature inside of um, Michelangelo, the, 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 the ecstasy. You know, what what do I mean by that? Well, you know, like most of your life, you're walking around like wiping your ass, eating food, sitting around, reading newspapers and all this. But every now and again, you're you're having sex with a beautiful girl and creating a absolute specimen of a human being by blowing your DNA into her perfect DNA and having this unity of spirit happening. And this moment of perfection, this is it doesn't happen that often. It doesn't happen every every 40 minutes or something like that. It's, It's rare. You know, it'll happen a few times in your life. You know, like, you, you know, have sex with her a lot, but you're not going to procreate with her like, more than 12 times unless you're an absolute machine. And so this perfection, that happens on occasion. And this is the more perfect moments of our life. The same way as, like, the, the higher nature inside of us, the higher potential inside of us. It's like, it's like an angelic version of ourselves. Inside of us, there's a lower man, a golem, and an angel. And Michelangelo, possessed by this higher potential... It manifests itself in this stone and pulls him to express this, pulls him to express this power out of himself. And this this compulsion, this will to transfigure, to take the world and bend it and make it beautiful. This is art. This is all art is. Art is the will to power expressing in itself. It's a masculine, assertive, violent force. Artists bend the world into their image. And this is, like, really think about this. Everything, even that which he is not, is nevertheless to such a man a means of rejoicing over himself. Through art, man rejoices over himself as perfection. Like, this is possibly the biggest idea I've, I've ever heard from Nietzsche. Like, this just shattered me when I really got it. Because I, 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 I imagine Michelangelo by himself standing with David and, and releasing this angel. And he's he's be, he's possessed by his better nature because I I'm like this like I I've I've experienced this before and it's genuinely godlike genuinely divine and I don't mean to say I'm godlike I'm I'm a decrepit... Ugly entity with loads of fallen pieces of myself, you know, I go and I, you know, pick my nose, I I trip up and stub my toe, I go downstairs and I talk to a girl and she's like, what are you doing, bro, like shave or something like this, I go and I, I, I you know, like say something awkward to my friends, I get a bit tired sometimes, I, I like pick my ear and like wax falls out, I like fart, like all these dirty, horrible things about these things that are just, they pathetic, they're lower, they're things that I love to erase out of myself to make myself clean as a whistle. I, these things burden me. The, the, I get hungry sometimes. I, my, my throat gets sore, I get sickly. I I'm not I haven't got the, I haven't reached my potential. I' don't have the power to manifest my will, all these type of things. All these things, they possess me. They, 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 they grab me, they pull me down, I feel them all. I feel them all to a huge extent. But at the same time, there's these moments where I'm, for example, maybe talking about one of these. I'm, I'm doing one of these podcasts and I feel in me the sizzle. It like rises up into my belly, into my chest and into my shoulders. sort of feel it now a little bit. Or I'm making a song. I've had this many times with songs where I'll just be gripped by this feeling in me somewhere. And I'm, I'm letting the feeling talk. And and I've talked to Malte, for example, the, the painter. And he has the same experience where he's gripped by this evocative, pregnant feeling. And he has to paint something, and and afterwards, you, you like he paints it, and he finds he says he can just sit there and stare at what he painted for hours. And I'm the same. I, I will create something, and I will especially if it's artistic. I've noticed, like if I make a that that animation of "Thus Spoke Zarathustra" or a song like "Machine Is Just a Whore" or "Time Is a Weapon." I, I sit down, and I listen to those, and I see like the my perfect version of myself present in there like a flicker that's been consolidated like a, a moment in my life you know I'm there between stubbing my toe and like picking my ear there's also moments where I do I say very very compelling things I say to my friends something that's quite quite astounding I I come up with a very witty joke I sing well and then I I managed to consolidate this and present it and and rip out all the bullshit and just present the perfection and I sit there and I listen to it and it's like I'm in a trance. I'm like, I listen to this and I'm like, it doesn't even sound like me. It sounds like something beyond me. And But it's very intimate because it came from me. I, th- I just don't know how to describe it. It's, there's something incredibly beautiful about it. And, and I, I saw this and I was like, that's what it is. That's what happens with Michelangelo. Michelangelo gets com- g- g- possessed by this desire to manifest this higher potential, the angel, inside of him. He gets possessed by this. And he, he attacks the stone. He launches himself upon the stone beyond good and evil. He's not There's no moral sh- like crap or anything like that. He's not held back. He's a pagan launching himself upon a woman. Launching himself upon the material world, matter, the fallen world. And he's expressing divine energy upon it. And he's crafting, beating it into shape. Crafting it into shape with all his profound skill. And he stands back after he's completed and he looks up at it. And, and this is... Like he feels exhilarated looking at it because it's like a great victory he's had over himself. He's defeated his animal nature, his chimp nature, his golem. He's defeated stubbing his toe. He's defeated all the times things have failed. He's overcome everything. He's, he's achieved victory. He looks at it and sees perfection, sees something higher, sees a God that was born out of him, that was born through him. He sees a consolidation of a part of him, the part of him that is godlike. And a true statement of worship where he made sure that that part of him defeated the other part of him. Through art, man rejoices over himself as perfection. And then, of course, a very, very harsh realization comes as a consequence of this. In order for Michelangelo to create something like David, there has to be this um, vivid, life-affirming energy inside of him. He has to be possessed by the God. He has to be possessed by this phenomenal force. He has to be possessed by this desire to overcome. This angelic entity inside of him is an expression of his innate will to power, the energy inside of him. And if he has not began his life and his culture has not began their life on first principle to make him strong and passionate and proud and understand himself and healthy, then that energy will not be present. And so you can have an artist who has almost no angel inside of him or has learned to discard that angelic inside of him, that ideal inside of him. And instead this this, this entity, this person who's in pain and who's suffering, who is, doesn't have the, the divine in him, even though he might pontificate and say that he is the most godly you could possibly be. He does not possess divinity. He does not have this instinct, this energy inside of himself that Michelangelo does. So all he has really, or the stronger energy inside of him, the one that occupies his consciousness, is Gollum, is the fallen entity, is, is this weak, decrepit version of himself. And this reflects his experience of reality. And this ref- reflects his strongest passions. And so the extreme ecstasies, and maybe ecstasy isn't the right word, but this, this extremity of pain, which is the strongest feelings he sees and he experiences, this becomes the thing that he obsesses about. And he becomes an artist trying to impose this upon the world. And so when he sees the stone, what comes out of him is not an angel of David, but instead he sees Gollum. He sees Gollum in the stone because he has a weak will to power, weak energy. Life is an imprisoning experience of pain and suffering upon him. And so when he releases his energy upon the stone, he's trying to pull out of it horror and pain and suffering and something that's deadening. And this pulls down the heart of man. This pulls down the energies of man. When Michelangelo sees this, what evokes inside of him is deep, deep sadness and pity. Deep, deep horror. It, it deadens. It draws the blood out of you. It disempowers. It demoralizes. It is ugly. Like, modern society has this effect because most of the artists in modern society suffer. And so they become the ones who get this preponderance because most of the upper class suffer too due to these industrial revolution problems, due to uh, incorrectly 1st principle culture. And so they commission all these modern artists. And these modern artists represent the psychosis, schizophrenia, disassociation. They represent to us pain. They represent to us suffering. They represent the golem within us because they see it, and this is very, very interesting when you inspect them. They see what they need to do is awaken consciousness in the naive Michelangelos of the world, those who um, unquestionably see themselves as healthy and express that healthiness in happiness and joy and the strength and sort of naive strength of art. Instead, they see that as like baby-like and something that needs to be broken and taken out of man. They, they see man as needing to be pulled out of his bubble. They see their job as having to awaken to the masters, to the higher, to the creative, to the healthy, to the tyrant artists, to the people with strong will, to the power. They need to awaken in them a conscience, an awareness of Gollum, an awareness that Gollum exists. And so this is trying to pull consciousness down to the fallen, down to the suffering, down to the botched. And, of course, this is a frightening thing to do, a very pernicious thing to do. It's like, you know, someone having sex and you're flashing images in in their heads of, like, deformed children. Of course, that would immediately put them off. So you're, you're, you're having sex with the intention of impregnating your beautiful, glorious wife. And someone just comes in and starts to flash images in your head or put on the TV or shout at you the idea of, like... A disease or decrepit children or genetic malfunctions and all this and all this stuff starts to possess your mind you're like oh man no, no, I've, i'm not in the mood it deadens you it turns you off you go you go soft you're weak it demoralizes as i said and of course the people who will the, the people who express this golem nature it's not like they necessarily know they're often unconsciously doing this because they suffer and because they suffer they express this way And the problem is is that it pulled the electric, the exciting, the energetic, the righteous down. And the great accusation against Christianity is that it was in its fundamental essence a religion that centered its focus upon the fallen nature of man, the golem nature of man. And this is a terrible thing and blasphemous thing to say about Christ, and I don't mean it in that way, but this is the accusation that Christianity is a is a, a orgy of cruelty and victimhood. And and this is often what people like René Girard would say is that Christianity gave birth to a conscience in people and awoke inside the Romans, for example, a consciousness of the victim, which is precisely what the sort of Gollum artist wants you to do. The they want you the golem wants you to become the golem artists want you to become aware that suffering exists and they're the person suffering. And this is what Nietzsche says. It's a slave revolt in morality. The Jews are suffering, the, the the slaves to the Romans are suffering, the people who the Roman rule are suffering, and they create an art, a dream, a vision through Christianity, through Christ's crucifixion. They create a religion that is that evokes, that brings out it's like an artistic work that, that deadens the spirit of the Romans and gets and gets the Roman to become aware of pain and suffering and it pulls the Roman down. It flashes into the Roman's mind the 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 negativity of life. And it, it makes the Roman fall, and makes the Roman question himself, and makes the Roman sad, and makes the Roman feel weakness of will, and no longer trust his ascendant instincts. It reduces the Roman's will. It it, it deadens his spirit. And of course, Christianity becomes a success, and then it becomes operant as a success around the world as this. And this is this is its greatest accusation. And I think this is an extremely sophisticated and serious accusation. That, like, if you actually steal man it, it, it will floor you. It will hit you very, very hard. And nonetheless, I think Nietzsche's most profound ideas are not about becoming some type of neurotic, dildo-up-your-arse, anti-Christian Richard Dawkins running around accusing Christianity for all the ills in the world, because that is not true. It's about understanding what Christianity was and these psychological phenomenon that it tilts towards. Also understanding that it can often be a profound... Like foundation for strength in a culture. French culture was Christian. But also understanding the true operant cause. We're, we're just basically moving back to first principles and understanding that what creates beauty and excellence and truth and height, which is what we're looking for. This is the, the thing, the, get your aim correct, which is this ascendancy, truth, and height. And also get the first principles that cause that, which Nietzsche would say is this process of energized will to power. Because the first principle behind that is the people who are creating these artists were correctly focused on the right cultural um, aspects and they were illiberal in their approach, imposing standards upon people, which is what happened during the Renaissance. And then what you have is something that can go beyond Christianity without resentment towards it, which is really important, without, without hate, but go beyond into the future and adapt to the world that we have in front of us as it is and see these first causal principles and build a reality and a focus and a, a culture and a way of moving forward based on these. And I think that is by far the most sophisticated way to look at things, because you're dealing with reality as it is. You're unideological. You're not resenting and turning into some neurotic ideological reactionary like the new atheist and Richard Dawkins, who are completely wrong on every account. But you're, you're standing on the truth and you're focusing on the good and the beautiful and the true. And you're seeing processes you need to put into place in order to achieve that. Which, of course, is beginning with persuasion of the body, creating energy in the body, imposing illiberal standards upon groups of people who form your culture, who form the base of your culture. And then, of course, ev- evoking in them and encouraging them this artistic impulse, this orgasmic, artistic ecstasy, and permitting this and, and dangling this as a card in front of them saying that is possible. And then understanding that this vision of artistic and creative power, this, like Michelangelo, standing there seeing an angel born out of him represented in the stone understanding that together as a group you also have angels that are born out of you gods that are born out of you this is the origin of gods When people stood there with their artists as their voices, they stood as groups, as tribes, and artists manifest some of these figures that they cast into stone. Like when you look at the pagan figures of Ares, Aphrodite, and all this, this is what was happening. It was the spirit of the people being born in statues, representing back to themselves, reflecting back to themselves their will to power. Zeus stood above the Greeks as a representation of their will to power. And of course, what Nietzsche is saying, is that if you get with a group of people who still possess this will will to power, and you you, you get them to look inside themselves and feel inside themselves this strong energy and watch as the, the higher potential in them, because they'll certainly have a lot of impurities in them, but you watch as this higher potential in them is born and it starts to express itself through their artists and starts to give them an image that they can pursue towards. He says that that image, that God, that vision of the future, that vision of highest potential, that vision of divinity will be what we call the ubermensch, the first step beyond man. A man of extreme health, a man who is not Gollum, a man who overcomes the most precarious situation we find ourselves in where the Gollum man will rule the world if we are not careful. And this is a very, very interesting project. Any ambitious aspirational creative artists could lay at their feet and at that I'll leave it as a wrap I'd say this is probably the set of most important ideas I think a modern person could understand you will not get this anywhere else this is as uber as it gets I will say to you um that I'll include after this several uh several added uh podcasts from back in the day so just a couple of representations on postmodernism, God, the Ubermensch that I spoke about before. I, I made them um, before. They're like floating around on the internet somewhere, but I'll just put them all here so you can check them out. And uh, I did a little bit of voice acting at the start of some of them and I listened back to them. and am like, oh, for fuck's sake, I, I kind of could have done a better job. I think uh, uh, certain parts of it are brilliant, but uh, I think one of them, I'm sort of like, he's definitely putting on a voice. But um, it's good stuff and check it out. Have a listen and we will talk to you soon.